Evening, Tom. Evening, Emma. How are you? Yeah, very good, thanks. Let's uh, send out tweets to get us going. So hopefully it'll be a good one. I, I, we, well, first question, Omar. Did uh, did anyone actually come back with any questions? <laughs> uh, I did get I did get one. <laughs> um, but we can see how we go on um, as as people dial in. I uh, I had a couple of questions for you anyway, mate. Because, you know that's <laughs> the type of guy I am. That's very very well prepped of you. I'll think of some as we go. <laughs> <laughs> Famous last words. Well, you know what? That, yeah. that's, that's what live show is all about, isn't it, really? Sometimes not knowing what you're exactly. going to get. Exactly. It's the pure jeopardy of it all. Now, um, what's, what's caught your eye in the, in the transfer window? Well, um, I'm going to try and multitask at the same time and, um, and do this, but I'll ask, answer the question first, which was um, I actually was really interested in the, um, the Chris Wood deal. Um, in part because you know there was a lot of interesting synergy, interesting you know uh, ideas that came together, which was, you know, obviously there was um, well it's been reported a release clause, um, Burnley and Newcastle being rivals to avoid relegation. Um, you know, in a way, the value of Wood being quite high actually in terms of normal market, I guess at the moment. But the value um, really being attracted to the fact of weakening, significantly weakening a rival uh, whilst um, strengthening your own team to a degree. And um, I hadn't really you know, thought about that in terms of transfer fee valuation to a degree where, you know, in the past, usually if rival, rivals won't sell their good players or best players to each other. But that's where, you know, a release clause comes in very useful for the buying club um, and causes a very difficult situation for the selling club yeah i couldn't think of many examples where there's been such a kind of direct rivalry and, and a player's gone between the clubs for, for that reason um and yeah i agree on on um on many levels a, a kind of sensible move to to acquire a player to, to weaken a rival um and and the valuation i mean a lot, a lot gets talked about valuation i think um i produced a, a number which which suggested that Chris Wood was the most expensive 30 plus year old uh, in the history of English football um in terms of transfer fee t- I mean if you factored in salary I suspect there, there'd be others that that would exceed him like like Ronaldo for example but um I, I think um the, the fee actually was probably relatively reasonable the usual rule of thumb is to look at the transfer fee as a proportion of the club's revenue um and Again, little finger in the air, but you take Newcastle's revenue is probably in the region of two hundred million, uh, maybe maybe a bit more. So we're talking about player costing in the region of kind of twelve percent of of the club's revenue. And, and historically, when you look at players at that um, transfer fee, it's not it's not a ridiculous proportion of revenue to pay. I mean, you do see it, when you start to get fifteen, sixteen, seventeen percent, that's where you start to get into the kind of field of of icon players. But at that kind of ten to twelve percent mark, it's it's a player who's expected to come in start most games and, and make you know a reasonable impact but not necessarily be a transformative player at the club so in, in some ways a kind of reasonable transfer fee obviously there's the age factor but but increasingly i think um there's probably older players are increasingly undervalued in some respects because everyone's going after younger players i really like that transfer outlier that would necessarily is and just going to prep everyone and thanks everyone for starting to join that this is obviously q a uh, one today so obviously um we'd just like to get everyone's questions so if anyone's got 
any burning questions, wants to raise a hand or whatever else it might be to be able to, to ask anything from Omar or myself, please feel free to start thinking about the questions you might want to um, ask and then we can start uh, digging into those. I thought the other one, Omar, that was um, quite an interesting one, again, is probably actually the uh, Newcastle one with Trippier to a degree. So he, Trippier go, is going from, you know, a... Uh, Champions League qualifying uh, Spanish team Atletico to you know um, a relegation uh, battled team again with Newcastle, and I've been fascinated just generally to think I haven't you know heard too much um, interesting commentary about it around you know is Trippier going to have a release clause if Newcastle go down on Newcastle um, you know have, had they been in a strong enough position to be able to have a wage reduction a relegation wage reduction clause in the face in the face of it in order to be able to um, you know reduce their wages if they were to go down for example you know just those dynamics involving the agents and the the, the clubs I would have found must have been a really fascinating one um, in terms of you know a real Champions League play England international um, going into the um, going into the fire, really. Yeah, I'd have thought Trippier would have been in a pretty good negotiating position there as the first signing, you know, an icon player and ability to kind of, I suppose, dictate terms um, in a way as to what, what the deal could look like. And yeah, I, I think, um, you know, if you, if you are players looking at Newcastle at the moment, then release clauses are interesting. I, I suspect, obviously, they're going to be one of the better players, well, probably the best players in the championship if they do go down. So it's not it's not necessarily the end of the world if they do go down. I'd be interested to know how many um, players have, have kind of um, relegation clauses. Uh, I've got a question for you, Dan, from uh, from Twitter. Um, and I'm going to potentially butcher the name here, but uh, Chiriato Chira, Chira, uh, Banerjee. Um, so he says, on the legal side, it'd be great to hear if in future we can have clauses for, for example, um, X for a number of attempts or X for a number of chances created, um, resulting in some sort of bonus uh, for the player. So as you think about um, the future of, of football contracts and bonuses, can you imagine them being introduced for, for individual stats rather than just goals and assists, which we know exist already? Yeah, it's a great one. So, I mean, Omar, it might be, if I can, without wanting to push it back to you, what I haven't seen in um, contracts so far is obviously we've, we've contracts have evolved to a degree, especially for the elite clubs, away from individual bonuses to some degree into types of collective bonuses. So appearing, winning, contributing, etc., rather than assists and goals. And I think what um, CB's, because he's a friend of mine, Shirata's um, question was based in India, was, you know, do you actually have a halfway house approach to that, which is to a degree... Um, looking for uh, not necessarily the outcome, but the process and the individual uh, uh, process rather than outcome. So, you know, do you can you reward someone to, regardless of whether the striker um, is um, a you know brilliant goal poacher or going through a terrible streak in the same way um, as you know whether a striker is doing well themselves for expected assists or expected goal, expected goals? Have you, Omar, in your experience when either you're chatting with clubs or leagues or you know agents or otherwise, started thinking about that type of measure, or is it simply so nuanced? Is part of my issue sometimes. Is it simply so nuanced that actually um, it becomes difficult to draft, include, and um, sort of execute in, in contracts? Yeah, I think there is definitely a challenge of, of nuance and, you know, data collection and so on. It's not, you know, it's, objective stats aren't always as objective as, as you might think. Um, but it's it's um, it's a good point you make um, around kind of trying to emphasise processes. Um, and I, a bugbear of mine, that a lot of football bonuses are based on on outcomes. Um, you know, it's, it's around winning, it's around trophies, table position. 
Um, and really, if you think about bonuses as a reward, fine, do it on outcomes. But if you think of bonuses as a means for incentives, then you need to be essentially encouraging activities that individuals wouldn't be pursuing otherwise. Um, so what I mean by that is there are some things that we do or footballers do that aren't optimal for winning or for, you know, going higher in the league um, or, or things that they wouldn't naturally do. So I know, um, for example, take um, a body fat percentage or, or, or some kind of health stat, you know, no one, you know, everyone's going to try and do their, probably their bare minimum to kind of stay fit at, or, the vast, or a lot of footballers may do the bare minimum to stay fit um, in order to, to kind of compete. Um, but if you have incentives around body fat percentages, which as a club, you know, ultimately drives better performance, which drives better results, then that's the type of thing that you might want to incentivize. It's not winning. It's the thing that helps you get to the winning. Um, so I think of like body fat percentage. I think of one of the things that I think is a big inefficiency in, in football is, is how teams perform at certain game states. So uh, if, if the score is, uh, if a team's winning 1-0, they tend to sit back much more than uh, the numbers suggest that they should. Um, so how do you incentivize teams to continue attacking when, when they're in the lead? So maybe you give additional bonuses for going 2-0 up or 3-0 up uh, rather than just for going 1-0 up. So I don't, I don't think necessarily um, football's at that, that kind of levels of sophistication yet. Um, but I think um, there are there are ownership groups, there are um, boards and so on that are beginning to think in this way and beginning to think much more about process than outcomes in, um, in the world of, of bonuses. No, that's a great one. Um, and again, just to put it out there to the, to the audience, really interested to have any questions, thoughts that I might have. Um, we'll try and get you on for the question. Um, if there's anything that springs to mind. Um, Omar, I had one for you, if that's okay, um, which is a little bit of a mix of the stuff that I do and the stuff that you do is, um, obviously without um, uh, breaching any confidences in anything that we do, o over the years, um, agents will come to you um, at different times, either for transfers and for contract renewals, and will say, you know, we've reached a bit of an impasse. Uh, we need some ideas for how to measure the value um, of a particular player, what they're worth, particular comparables or benchmarks or otherwise and I, I know that you guys for some of our clients and for lots of others have helped in lots of different ways in um, trying to demonstrate through the player and the agent and trying to articulate that to the club about how you know how best to remunerate um, and to value um, and how valuable a player currently might be or might be in the future and I just thought it might be just a nice spotlight as much as you're willing to and able to say about how that sort of comes around and, and what type of stuff 21st Group has done in the past or continues to do on, on that type of side of things. Yeah, for sure. I, th I think numbers have a role to play in it. I don't think they're the be-all and end-all because ultimately any negotiation outcome is the result of you know, two or multiple people sitting down and, um, and agreeing and disagreeing on things. It's, it's, you can't just go, computer says no, or these are the numbers and, and therefore it's right. Um, but but there are things that that we do that we have done for uh, particularly agents, but but also clubs as well. So, um, for example, wage models um, that help predict or help understand what the market rate is for for any given player. So you can take wage data or estimated wage data and go and understand what are the key determinants of that. So age is obviously one. You know, the um, actually often the, the younger you are, the less you're paid for any given level of performance, and it takes a bit of time to build up. Uh, Kind of reputation to, to get paid at a certain level obviously level of performance is important uh position um some, some positions are kind of higher valued within uh, within teams and others such as attacking positions um you know length of time at club there's all these different things that that could come into uh how a, how a salary levels assessed and 
uh, will often kind of provide those market rates and, and associated player benchmarks um, for, for clubs and, and agents if they need it. Uh, and similarly on, on transfer values, the same exists. We, you know, we just spoke a little earlier around that Chris Wood valuation, being able to put any valuation, particularly in the context of, of inflation that's happened in football over time, clubs will often use a benchmark of, of a comparable deal that was done but that comparable deal might have been done 18 or, or 24 months ago and, and actually the market can move on from then. So being able to understand transfer fees and the content of, um, of revenues is another way of, of doing it. Um, so yeah, it, it, can, it can vary um, qu- quite a lot in terms of the, the tools you can use to, uh, in negotiation, but, but ultimately it's just providing information to, to better serve uh, either party to kind of reach their desired outcome. Uh, and yeah, just to reiterate your point, Dan, if there are any questions, so say raise raise your hand and be happy happy to answer them. Um, Dan, if if you think about um, the way that um, perhaps image rights have evolved um, in recent years for for footballers, um, I'm thinking we're we're now entering a world and age that I, I haven't completely quite got my head around in terms of NFTs, in terms of Web three, in terms of kind of footballers now being much more active on on social and and kind of building their own businesses and so on. Is that the type of thing that's now getting factored into the image rights agreements and is considered as, as players begin to move clubs? Yeah, it's a great one. Um, I still think, just as we've t- talked about previously, that you know the vast majority of value or money on the table that a player is going to generally earn is going to be in relation to um, their on-field employment contract, almost certainly, especially for... Um, a number of elite players um, at elite clubs around the world. Now, outside of that, um, if you take away you know, the employment remuneration, what is certainly happening is for um, a, a, bit, a large number of elite players, again, they'll almost certainly have at least one uh, big commercial deal, which will usually be their Adi, Nike, Puma, New Balance, etc. Um, um, boots deal that will tend to be relatively long-term and might be uh, more lucrative than um, than anything else, they're able to at least easily um, get by way of endorsement. Um, but I th- and, and I think the point there is is that usually for the vast majority of players, you know, they don't tend to have that many commercial endorsement opportunities or substantive ones outside of a boot deal. But what happens for a number of the the, the top players um, and good players that have you know good uh, management teams around them and have good good commercial branding, social media teams that are doing things well and looking for those types of commercial opportunities is that then those endorsement deals will, will, will come. And, you know, we're seeing it uh, interestingly, you know, in the crypto and NFT sphere, as you said, with, you know, ex-players like John Terry um, tweeting and marketing particular uh, Chelsea branded NFTs. Um, so what I mean there a lot of the time is, and there was an interesting article in The Athletic I saw recently about how, um, you know, players are looking to invest in particular types of um, uh, NFTs that are pretty popular now, Board Ape and others being um, some of them. So I think two things. The first is um, always the driver is going to be uh, the value that a club attaches to a player's on-field um, uh, ability. 
that may also spill over into the commercial field, especially for the bigger elite clubs who want to be able to use a player's image through their image rights company to um, exploit and to partner with particular commercial entities that can provide lucrative remuneration for both the player um, and the club accordingly. And then players in their own right will have lots of different commercial opportunities if they've got a good team behind them. Um, and then we'll be able to either endorse, you know, become ambassadors for, or we'll simply just have commercial arrangements with lots of different brands across a variety of different sectors. And we're seeing, you know, crypto's absolute, you know, boon at the moment um, with a variety of different sponsorship um, um, deals that have been entered into in the sports sphere, more in the US sphere over the last six to eight to nine months. But I'm positive that's then going to spill and tip over into the European and UK market, as we've seen with a variety of different, you know, um, socios and um, other types of fan card trading NFT side. But that's, you know, a different side to the same um, discussion too. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to have a conversation on that. Um at some point as well um i'm sure i i haven't really got a view on it yeah i read that same athletic article and it's kind of beginning to try and understand that world but uh yeah i, su- I suspect a lot of footballism people in football are beginning to as well um i might i might ask you one no more of that sorry, yeah. unless you've seen a question come in but i, I certainly yeah. don't want to monopolize the conversation because you know i think one of the things that you're at the cutting edge with obviously is you know data analytics the numbers behind the game whereas i'm you know more reading the contracts and drafting stuff um and reading the regulations or both maybe both of us are reading regulations a little bit um (laughs) you know i'd just be fascinated to hear you know i always i'm always really interested to hear your um blue sky thinking or you know black box ideas on um you know stuff that you're seeing in the the analytics world in um you know the way that you're collecting data and i'm not sure whether that might be player focused club focused league focused or otherwise but you know without putting you on the spot i'm just i'm sure everyone will be just fascinated to hear you know the types of if not, you know, specifics, the types of projects that you're getting involved in and the types of insights you're talking about, the World Leagues Forum that you're doing some great stuff with and, and others, just, um, you know, those types of insights as to what data can bring to the industry and the types of analytical work that you're doing, which, again, just um, um, heaps uh, greater visibility on, you know, what clubs should be doing well, what leagues should be doing better, what players could be doing to better enhance their, their game, etc. Yeah, for sure. So maybe I'll start on the theme of, recruitment and the transfer window maybe i'll start with um with recruitment um so firstly there's obviously a huge amount of data now available in in football and a, a lot of it is exceptionally hard to pick apart um you know you're, you're talking about you talk about tracking data for example which which um monitors where a player is on the pitch every tenth of a second or so you're talking about you know, millions of rows of data per game just on one player let alone all, all 22 and, and that can be really challenging and, and hard to compute and and actually, I think a lot of um, clubs don't necessarily have the infrastructure in order to handle that data, let alone the um, kind of data science skills to, to analyze it. Um, and and that th- those are two separate challenges that I think clubs are beginning to kind of get their get their arms around. Um, but when it does come to the analysis, I think it's it's the other challenge is working out where you know the, the signal is in it, where where the actual so what of the analysis is, because it's very it's all well and good saying a player is running more or, or creating space or whatever, but does that actually relate to, to winning football matches? And that's what we specialise in. We 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 look at um, metrics and we look at and we try and build models that help us understand and better predict the outcome of, of football matches. And if you're able to do that um, at, at a player level, then obviously it's got relevance for recruitment because if a, if a player is doing the types of things that 
lead you to that are more likely to win games and then obviously um on balance probabilities that player is likely to, to succeed and uh, and it's not um there's no kind of one there's no kind of solving football approach here there's lots of different um angles to tackle the analysis um but but it's um, it's certainly trying to pick apart the the, the key metrics that, that can do that, and, and often there is a lot of signal actually in the in the more basic numbers. Um, you'd be surprised at how much information you can glean from things like appearances, um, things like wins and draws, and the, and the quality of the team, which um, which we do a lot of, particularly as it relates to work with with leagues where that data doesn't doesn't exist. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, to kind of branch it out a little bit more, the wider work we do is is often with leagues, uh, often with investors, which I've spoken about before, and uh, and also in in the space of um, content for for fans and and kind of predictive insight for fans. So, a lot of our work with leagues is around forecasting um, what might happen to leagues if you change your format, or what might happen to viewership if you change your schedule. Um, so, we've been working on a couple of projects in, in Belgium and the UAE the last few months on. Uh, on competition design and, and looking at options to to reform the competition there, um, and also looking in, in a couple of Asian leagues as well in um, in how to do the scheduling in order to to maximise the number of, of viewers to, to, who who can watch the game at any given point in time, which which might seem like a, a straightforward task, but actually scheduling is is a hugely complex task again that needs um, analytics to to solve. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of numbers now in, in football that are happening behind the scenes, and I I think I try my best to. To ensure that people are kind of aware of it, because it is um, uh, it is a kind of fascinating part of the industry, and and I hope in some respects it's not. Um, I get challenged by this sometimes. It's not destroying the soul of the industry. It's not trying to trying to take things away from from the sport or make it scientific, but it's hopefully enhancing the arts because it's giving fans a, a greater reason to celebrate a player that does really well in the team, or giving fans more drama at the end of the season, or um, you know enabling investors to make good strategic. Um, investments such that they're not throwing money away at, at, at a club as, as we've seen in the past so I, I do get that tag sometimes on, on data that it's is ruining or, or taking away the art of the sport but in many ways I, I hopefully see it as, as enhancing it really interesting um so we've got a few minutes left i i was wondering whether what we actually do is give a, a maybe a, a couple of ideas for the last couple of weeks of the window so Omar, we've both chatted for quite a while, haven't we, about this idea that I, that the more I think about it, the more the narrative, I think, seems to be the case where, you know, we were talking about what would happen post-COVID with transfer fees and then with wages, etc. And, and maybe that's something that you've looked into already um, and, and maybe will do in the future in, in a lot more detail. But my sort of narrative over the last two years or so has been, well, because transfer fees are more dynamic um, and real time in a way so that, you know, if the transfer system or rather the, the transfer market um, has a recalibration, then that recalibration starts immediately with transfer fees between willing buyers, and willing sellers. But when we're talking about wages, there is that two or three year delay to a degree, isn't it? Um, that sort of latency of um, contracts effectively running out and running its course where those contracts might be in the current market at inflated rates. And that obviously causes um, stagnation in the system to a degree because no one wants to move in, in case and because maybe those wages won't be improved if they go somewhere else. 
do you have a view firstly on that and then how then that leads into you know this window and future windows in terms of then how not the system becomes unstuck but how things get moving in different ways does it take a couple of very big mega domestic transfers to then feed down the pyramid to a degree or, or is there other other things that you are you're seeing based on your analysis your analysis yeah, I think um, the Coutinho move to Villa was um, maybe indicative of where things had gone. I mean, it was reported that he took a pay cut to go on loan to Villa. Um, and that's kind of, I mean, it's probably partly a combination of Coutinho perhaps having been overpaid, you know, pre-COVID, you know, irrespective of, of COVID. Um, but, it, but it may also be an indicator that um, players and agents are going to have to accept that um, clubs' finances are squeezed um, and, and cash flow in particular squeezed for, for clubs at the moment. And and therefore, their ability to kind of pay these big signing fees and, and wages is, is reduced. Um, I agree with you. I think it is going to be um, slow. To be fair, I think it's been slow even in the transfer market. Um, you know, the the actual average fee paid for players at, in the Big Five and, and Championship, for example, hasn't changed. Um, it's, it's exactly what it was pre-COVID. It's just that the volume of deals getting done has, has fallen. So the, obviously, the total, total volume of... Um, Kind of pounds moving around is, is fallen, but not because the average fee is falling, but because of the volume falling. So, um, in many ways, you might see the same in in wages as well. In you know fewer player movements, um, you know fewer signing fees paid, um, clubs kind of committing to the same salaries that they have today and, and trying to maybe let players go on freeze or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of a sticky market, and then you wonder well how quickly is going to recover. You know, obviously in England we've managed to sustain this season with with full stadiums. Um, you know, there, there may be a recovery in the, in the media rights market in, in time. Obviously, the Premier League will have a bigger media rights deal um, from from the next cycle because of the overseas money, not because of the domestic money. So, um, yeah, you might end up having a, a more polarised polarized perspective on the market as well. But it's, it's going to be interesting because they, you know, talking to what we talked about earlier in terms of um, valuing players and, and using data to do that, that becomes increasingly challenging when those benchmarks are so so fluid when you, you're not really sure which which direction the, the market is going in. I think that's totally right. Totally right. And, um, you know, I, you know, just from my visibility, you know, and the agencies that I work with, I think it's just it feels like it's a hard, everyone's having a bit of a harder time to get um, the volume deals over the line, not necessarily the very high value ones, but the volume deals. So let's wait and see for a couple of weeks' time. Well, um, Omar, I'm really glad that we got to ask each other a few questions, if nothing else, which was um, useful. We're going to have to go back to the drawing board to try and elicit some more questions, I think, from the from the audience for uh, another time. But as always, mate, great to chat and um, look forward to speaking again next week. Nice one. Cheers, Dan. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website danielg.com forward slash blogs please do subscribe to the done deal football podcast like share and tag me if you like the content if not my voice you'll probably also like my book done deal an insider's guide to football contracts multi-million pound transfers and premier league big business a bit of a mouthful it's available to buy in hard copy digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word go to 13shop.co.uk 
That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.